the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting. God so loved the world. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining in that new song with us. Um, the band leader, I don't know who she is, got started late today, and that was supposed to be an intro song, but you know, you got the idea. So thanks for being here today. Welcome in person and online. And uh, we just love to have you join us in this next upbeat song, okay? Feel free to stand and sing. Welcome here at Creekside Church. If you are here and as, as a guest, this is your first time at Creekside, we would appreciate it. There are bulletins on the welcome table, so if you would take a bulletin and then on the, in, on the flap on the bulletin, there is a place for you to fill out your information and put it in the box that's on the welcome table that, where we collect offering. If you do that, we'd sure appreciate it. You don't have to, of course, but we'd love to be able to make contact with you after the service so we'd know of your attendance with us and if there's any way we can encourage you that'd be great we'd love to do that a couple of other things i want to call to your attention first of all beginning this week on wednesday we'll be back for our women's men's and women's bible studies on wednesday evenings from 6 30 to 8 so would encourage you to come out and join us for those times and then there are a lot of other things in the bulletin that you can take note of but one thing that we're doing is we're collecting uh, school supplies for those in the community, Urbandale community, who have financial need. So there's a box out there in the lobby, and there's a list on the back of the sermon notes in your bulletin of things you could be picking up. We'd sure appreciate it if you'd do that. We're trying to get it done so we can have the collections done here in the next week or so. So we'd sure appreciate that. Just a note of thank you from Irma Nyux. Uh, Bob had heart surgery. And I've been talking to Irma, and she just said, ah, would you just tell the folks thank you so much? The cards and the emails and the text messages and stuff have been really encouraging to her. So just really thank you for uh, making that a special note in your uh, time, taking time to contact him and just continue to pray for his healing. He is home now, so that's a, that's a praise. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the, the platform over to our, our brother Alan, who's going to share from God's Word. All right. Thanks, Steve. Good morning. It's great to see everyone here today. If you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, and we are going to be looking at the second half of the chapter this morning. You know, many of you are aware the Olympic Games are underway, and, uh, you know, it's kind of fun to watch the different athletes that have been training so hard, normally for four years. This year they've been training for five years. Uh, you know, whatever their skill or, or thing is that they are, are training for. And they either get to see their hard work pay off or, or not, but one way or the other, uh, they get a chance to kind of prove what they've been working on and what they've been doing for the past few years. Uh, the picture on the screen is a guy by the name of Eric Liddell. Uh, many of you are familiar with him. Uh, made, made somewhat uh, famous in contemporary times through the movie The Chariots of Fire. But about 100 years ago and, and, uh, at the Paris Games, he made a decision, a strategic decision, uh, 
if you watch the movie, they make it sound like it was a last-minute decision. That wasn't the case. Um, this was several months before the Olympic Games happened, and the schedule came out, and his, his very best event, the 100 meters, uh, he found out that the trials would be happening on a Sunday. And for him, he had a, he had a conviction and a, and a belief that to run on that day would be dishonoring to God. And so what he did instead was he made the choice that he was going to run the 200 meter and the 400 meter instead. And so when he was faced with the choice with pursuing God as he understood it and the world's acclaim, he chose to follow God instead. And in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, uh, we see kind of a portrait of another young man who's kind of at a crossroads in life and facing a crucial decision and trying to weigh the choice between God's reward and the world's riches. And so if you turn to Matthew 19, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Matthew 19, 16 says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Just pause there and open our time in prayer. Father, we pray that as we look at the portrait of this, um, of this young man and we look at this interaction with Jesus, Father, that you would just use this time to probe our hearts, um, that we could each just pause and reflect on what it means to have a better treasure, Father. We just pray that you would bless our time together in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a little picture uh, artist representation of Jesus and the rich young ruler. And, uh, you know, as we think about this guy, I just want to point out a, a few characteristics about him. So from verse 22, that's where we, where we see verse 22, we know that he was rich, right? Because it says he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. All right, so there's, he's got one thing going for him, he's rich, okay? From verse 20, we know that he was young. It, it refers to him as the young man. And this uh, passage is in two other of the Gospels, in both Mark and Luke. And from Luke 18, we know he was a ruler, okay? So this guy's got a lot going for him. He's a ruler, he's rich, he's young, kind of has, has all these intangibles or, or things that people would aspire to in this world, right? You want to be successful, uh, you want to have some authority and some influence. And really, you know, people prize youth. They want to have their health. They want to... Uh, hold on to it as long as they can, right? And, and so here he comes, and he asks this question. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Man, if you're one of the disciples, you're pretty pumped up right now, right? Like, man, 
Jesus, look at this guy. He's rich. He's a ruler. Uh, speculated that he might have been a synagogue ruler, but in any case, he was, a, he was a guy with some clout, right? He walked by. He was, you know, he was one of those people that just had respectability, right? He, he was someone that you wanted to get to know. You wanted to be around him. Um, he could probably do things to help you out. And here he comes to Jesus and he says, says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So, I mean, that's pretty exciting. I mean, how often does someone just come up so uh, clearly state, you know, hey, I want to find out what I have to do to have eternal life. Now, it is interesting that he asks this question when you consider all the stuff that he already has, right? He's rich, he has influence, he's young, but he still knows that something is lacking in his life, right? He still feels that all of his riches, all of his authority, everything that he has, he knows that he's still missing something, right? Otherwise, why does he come up and and ask Jesus this question? And, uh, you know, one of the commentators I read uh, speculates that, you know, maybe what he's trying to do here is is he's... He's looking for kind of this one um, spectacular act of charity, right? He's looking for maybe some kind of heroic deed, something that he can do that will really kind of put him over the top. Like, man, if I could just, maybe I need to find out some special secret or, or something that I've, that I've never read before. You know, he knows Jesus is, a lot of people are coming to Jesus. You know, they, he's a respected uh, teacher and the, the crowds are coming around him. He says, okay, I'm going go to I'm gonna go to Jesus too. And I'm going to say, hey, what great thing, what good deed can I do to, in, to have eternal life? And look at what Jesus says in verse 17. Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, if you look in, in Luke, the wording is is similar but a little different. And in Luke, he's also referring to Jesus as a good teacher. These, these passages aren't mutually exclusive. I think they, they complement each other. But just this idea that he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, you know, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus sees, sees a kind of a critical flaw right away in this guy's thinking. He's like, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. Why? You know, in Luke, he says, why do you call me good? And in, in, here in Matthew, he says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. See, this guy has a conception of goodness that is not based on the right scale. It's not based on reality. You know, when we think of goodness, we like to compare ourselves to other people around us, right? If we can look at, at some peer, some coworker, some family member, and like, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing a little better than them. You know, maybe I'm, I'm uh, a little more conscientious or a little better, you know. And, and so we, we kind of have a sliding scale for goodness. And what Jesus is trying to say is, no, that's not the right way to think about goodness. There is only one who is good. And, and by that, obviously, Jesus means the only one who is truly good is God himself. So this guy had a fundamental flaw uh, he had a kind of a superficial view of goodness. Now, if he would have read carefully in the Psalms, he would have come to Psalm 53. Psalm 53, verses 2 and 3, 
says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, Jesus could have just jumped right into all that and kind of hammered the point home even more, but, but he just stops, you know. He, he kind of gently challenges his understanding of goodness, okay? And then he goes ahead. He says, well, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, man, if you're like me at this point, you're like, whoa, Jesus, wait, what, what, what's going on here? What, what happened to, uh, you know, all the, all the things you shared with Nicodemus about, um, you know, being born again and um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whosoever believes in him should have eternal life. And here's Jesus saying, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. What's going on in this, in this scenario? Why is Jesus going down this path? Well, let's just, let's just follow it through, um, you know, because what you're going to see is Jesus is kind of indulging this guy's worldview, okay? This guy comes to him, he says, hey, you know, what's this great heroic good deed, you know, great thing that I can do? And Jesus, Jesus goes back to what would have been just the ABCs, right? I mean, the Ten Commandments, they would have, you know, in that culture, if you were part of the Jewish nation, you would have learned those, you know, you're four years old. You could have said the, the Ten Commandments. And then you spent all this time over, the, over time learning all the other, you know, the rest, trying to memorize the, the first five books of the Old Testament, trying to learn all the, all the additional things from, you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And then, you know, if you were continued to, to come up in a religious upbringing, you learned all the rules of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus just goes right back to the beginning, and he just focuses on some of the most basic uh, things. He says, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this guy's thinking, man, I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't come all this way to, to seek, after, seek out Jesus and just have him tell me the most basic things out of the Ten Commandments. And and he's thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm sitting pretty good. I'm, I'm in good shape. He says, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now, if, you, if he had been around for some of Jesus' earlier teaching in the book of Matthew, he would have he found out, you know, those, those commandments that you might think of as so simple are not simple to keep. You know, when you come to the commandment about murder and Jesus says, if you hate someone, um, you know, you're, you're breaking the law as a murderer. If you look at someone with lustful intent, you are breaking the law as it relates to adultery. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, has been trying to point people to just, the, uh, just kind of the utter impossibility of keeping the law. And yet, this guy has a superficial view of goodness, and he has a superficial view of the law. And, and in his mind, hey, I've kept these. And all the, these, these commands that Jesus gives are kind of ones that you can can measure yourself against, right? You can be like, well, you know, I, I haven't really murdered anyone. I haven't, I've been faithful to my, to my wife. I haven't committed adultery. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't stolen, all, you know, all these things. 
I'm honoring my father and mother. And this guy's thinking he's in pretty good shape, right? And again, you know, Jesus, he could have went back to what he shared at the Sermon on the Mount. He could have, he could have dove deeper into the law. But what does he do instead? Look at verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now you might be thinking, wait, where's Jesus coming up with this? Sell all your possessions, um, give them to the poor, come and follow me. He, he's, not, he's not in the Ten Commandments anymore. He's, you know, he's not in the book of Leviticus. He's not in the book of, you know, and, and this guy's thinking, well, wait, where's this coming from? Well, what's Jesus doing? He is actually using this example to point out to this guy that, no, you really haven't kept all the Ten Commandments. And, and you, know, you notice when Jesus, when Jesus uh, listed those commandments, he started in the middle, right? But if you go back to Exodus 20 and start at the beginning, Exodus 23, the very first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus is pointing out, if you really loved God as the highest thing in your life, then you would not hesitate to give up your riches. You would not hesitate to sell your possessions, give to the poor. And if you, if you understood that the man in front of you is actually God, you would give up anything to follow, to follow me and gain something better, right? Um, and so Jesus is, is, is pointing out that as much as this man thinks he has kept the commandments, that he, he's really actually failed at the very first commandment to have no other gods before him. Because for this guy, his money is his God. His money is what controls him. His possessions are his master, right? And so Jesus has tried to reorient this guy's thinking and his mind in a different direction and really has identified what the true and better treasure is. That Jesus himself is a treasure. If, you, if, a, if a person leaves everything else and follows after Christ, then it doesn't matter. The rest doesn't matter. And that's, that's what Jesus is trying to get through to him, that if you follow me, you've gained a better and lasting treasure. And, you know, you might read this passage and think, wow, you know, am I supposed to sell all my possessions if I'm going to have eternal life? And you know, if you look through the Gospels, this, isn't, this wasn't something, this wasn't like the kind of thing that Jesus said to, to every person, right? I mean, he did when he called his disciples, he did ask them to come follow him, right? But we see later that Peter did own a home. And, you know, you take like a, an example like the story of Zacchaeus, a rich guy who had defrauded a lot of people, and he, he gave away half of his money to the poor, and he also repaid everyone who he had defrauded, you know, by four times. But Jesus deals with us as individuals, and for this guy, he looked at him and said, your possessions, your money is what's keeping you. That's the thing that's keeping you from following after God. And for you, you've got to get rid of all of it. Now, Robert Gundry said that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions. He gives comfort only to the type of people to whom he would issue that command. Um, you know, I think about uh, 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6 says, um, 6.17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You know, I read that and I think, man, Timothy might have been reading Matthew the day before he wrote that letter, right? Because he's saying, man, here's what you need to do. Your treasure is a foundation for, you know, your earthly treasure. You need to use that as a way so that it becomes a foundation for treasure that is going to last beyond this life. So back to Matthew 19, we see this guy walks away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And just pause for a moment to think of, you know, man, in, in most people's uh, worldview, those th- two things don't go together, right? They think if you, if you have great possessions, you know, that's what makes you happy, right? This guy was sorrowful because he had great possessions. And just Matthew pointing out um, that this guy's possessions were actually controlling him and they were, they were not leading to happiness, right? They were leading to sorrow. And so now we see what the disciples' response is. The guy's left, he's gone. The disciples are sitting there a little bit shell-shocked, like, wait a second. We had this rich, successful guy come and say, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus, man, you just scared him off, right? You came out guns blazing. And, uh, you know, maybe you should have just kind of let him on, you know, let him follow us for a little while, and then maybe after a month said, hey, you know, maybe you should give $100 to this guy. And then the next month, uh, you know, kind of ease him into it. But Jesus just comes right out and says, oh, you've got to sell all your prisons. Because he's just getting to the heart of the matter, right? He's just pointing out that for this guy and, and for all of us, that it, to follow Jesus means, man, he has to be number one in your life. And so the disciples... Uh, Jesus turns to the disciples at verse 23, all right? So we talked about a better treasure identified, and now we have a better treasure interrogated. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So Jesus says, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in that culture, in that time, riches were viewed as God's blessing. So for the Jews, if they saw a person who had riches, they said to themselves, you know, God is blessing that person in general. Now, we read some, some psalms earlier this morning that talks about kind of this paradox that we also see, um, you know, sometimes you see the wicked prospering and you wonder, man, God, why is that happening? But just in general, um, you know, the Jewish people viewed riches as, as a sign that God was, was prospering someone. And, you know, from the Jewish perspective also, you know, someone who was rich and successful and, um, you know, and moral, right? Like, this guy was moral. He, he, was, he was seeking to fulfill the law. 
you know, in the disciples' mind, you're like, man, how are you going to get someone that is closer to the kingdom than this guy, right? Um, and, and, that's where, and that's where they're coming from. They're, they're confused all of a sudden. They're like, wait a second. If it, if it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, then what chance do we have, right? I mean, this guy's like at level nine and we're like down here. Uh, and so they're just baffled. They're just, they, just, they just don't know what to think. Like this is kind of just kind of changing their paradigm of, of how God works. You know, if the rich can't enter the kingdom, then who can be saved? And, and really, they take the question, Jesus kind of starts with a narrow example, and, and the disciples broaden it. They say, who can be saved, right? And, and Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So, what is the thing that's impossible? Again, remember the disciples broaden the question. They said, who can be saved? And I think what Jesus is saying is, it's not impossible for someone to be saved. But, but just think of the whole conversation he just had with the rich man. And what Jesus is saying is, it is impossible for someone to be saved through a program of self-improvement. It is impossible for someone to be saved by going down the law-keeping path. It is impossible for someone to be saved if they have not put God as, I am leaving my life behind and I want to follow you. That is what impossible is. And then he says, with God, all things are possible. So really, Jesus is just saying, you want to talk about salvation? And he's really saying, salvation apart from me is impossible. Salvation apart from the work of God, from the Holy Spirit moving in someone's heart, from God drawing someone to themselves, that's impossible. Okay? We don't come to God through our own efforts. We don't come to God through our own righteousness. We don't come to God through anything else, but we have to come to God as a needy person. And, and one of the things that riches does is it, kind of, it can kind of blind us to our own needs, right? If we're, if we're well taken care of, we have kind of a certain self-sufficiency, and we don't, we don't maybe always know that we need God. Obviously, we need Him, but we don't always realize it. And really, if you look back to the passage right before this, when the children were brought to, brought to Jesus and the disciples were like, you know, kind of not really on board with that, and, and Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for, do, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. So, I think, you know, this is very strategic, the, the, the order of this, you know, Jesus is kind of trying to reorient them back. Like, look, I just told you that the kingdom of heaven is like little kids coming. coming. And contrast that with the way of, of this rich, self-sufficient man, right? Kids, kids are needy and they know it, right? I mean, they are constantly need water, food, snacks, um, their TV shows, all these things. Kids are constantly needing things, all right? Here's the rich, here's, contrast that to the rich guy who comes and he's like, I don't really need anything. I've kept all the commandments. I mean, he still feels like there's something that he lacks, but in his mind, really, he, he's, he lacks very little. And so Jesus is just orienting them back to the fact that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you can't come like this rich guy, Okay. 
You need to come like someone who is a little child. You need to come like someone who doesn't possess anything. You need to come like someone with their hands open, someone who wants to grasp onto God, let go of everything else, and hold tight to God. And, you know, I think it's just a good time for us just to kind of pause and just ask ourselves, like, man, are there any ways in which kind of the prosperity and the materialism of our culture has kind of seeped into our soul and, and is influencing us, right? I mean, for me, I just think it's so easy to uh, become self-sufficient, right? To become someone who, who, who just thinks like, I've, I've got things under control. And, and sometimes I think our, our prosperity can kind of blind us to our need for God. Um, you know, in Luke, in Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus said, in Luke 12, 15, he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of sins where Jesus doesn't have to say that, right? He doesn't need to say, take care, be on your guard, um, you know, about adultery, right? I mean, you should be on your guard against it, but like if you're, if, you're, if you're committing it, you know. Like if I'm stealing from someone, I know. The thing about greed is it kind of blinds us. Like I, can, I could be coveting something, I could be building my life on, on material things, and I'm not really always aware of it because I might be comparing myself to someone else. I might be, you know, just thinking, hey, I'm just providing for, for my necessities. And, you know, we have a lot of capacity to kind of fool ourselves when it comes to material things. And, you know, I think that that's, a, that's something that we need to sometimes pause and ask God, you know, am I putting my possessions ahead of you? Or anything, Right. I mean, because this principle, this man, if, if this man was not a rich young ruler, he could have been someone else, uh, you know, Jesus would pinpoint that need of his heart and say, what is it that for you, if you lost that, you lose everything? And are you willing to let that go so that you can have me instead? Look at verse 27. We've talked about a better treasure identified, a better treasure interrogated, and now we look at a better treasure illustrated. So Peter, he loves to speak up, kind of says what the rest of the group is thinking, right? Peter says in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And you're like, whoa. You know, when Jesus was talking to the rich young man, he says, you know, sell your possessions, go, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Here Jesus really dives into what that treasure is. 
Just pause for a moment and think about some of the things that he tells them. He says, you will sit on 12 thrones judging, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And I don't, I don't know how this is all going to work, um, but I know it's going to be awesome, right? That someday when Jesus comes again and he puts everything right in this world, you know, he's going to take some of the people that the world looked at as the least. He's going to take some of the people that the world looked at as, you know, man, those people need to get a life. And he's going to take some of those people and put them in positions where they have some authority and some power. And isn't that kind of just, just amazing to think about, that, that God is going to take, and he has plans that, that actually include, when he sets the world right, um, that he's going to do that. In, in Daniel 27, it says, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. You know, you want to take the rulers and the authorities and the important people in this world's eyes, you're going to turn it all, all upside down, right? You're going to turn it all upside down. The first are going to be the last. And Jesus said, not only that, you know, I mean, that in and of itself would be amazing. But he says, you know, everyone who's, who's left behind houses, brothers, sisters, family, you know, for this guy, he may have been thinking about, you know, for him to sell all his possessions and give to the poor. He would be giving up a lot of friends and connections. And, you know, maybe his family would have turned his back on them as well. And Jesus is saying, I, I see all that loss. I see all that sacrifice. I'm going to repay it a hundred times, right? Now, if, if you talk to a financial planner, they get like pretty excited about like, if you can get like a 10% return, like, like that gets them going. Jesus says, no, I'm talking about a hundred times that, all right? And I, I think he's using some hyperbole, but he's just saying, you, you can't compare what you give up to what you're going to gain. And, and you can't outgive God. In Proverbs 19, 17, it says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Now, do you want to be someone who owes money to someone else? No. But it says, you give to the poor, all of a sudden, God is saying, I'm going to repay you. Okay, And so I think we, we get this mind that we might get this impression like, well, Jesus is telling this guy less is more, right? Jesus is telling him, you have less, you have more. And I don't really think that's the way to think about it. I think Jesus is saying that not that less is more, but that more is more. He's trying to say, I have something that's way better. I have something that's way greater. And in, in the end, you're not really giving anything up, Okay you're gaining something so much better. In the, in the 1960s, there was a guy called Walter Michel. He was a, a researcher. At, at, I think he was a psychologist at the University of Stanford. And he did this, this series of experiments to kind of try to understand how delayed gratification works. And so he had all these kids come in, three, four, five-year-olds. He brought them into a room, and he put a treat in front of them. I think in most cases, it was like a marshmallow. Now, I hope it was a bigger marshmallow, not just like a tiny little marshmallow. 
But I, I, I couldn't tell that from reading the descriptions. But he put a treat in front of him and said, okay. And remember, these are like three-year-olds. He said, you can eat this right now. Or you can wait in this room for 15 minutes, and I'm going to come back, and then you can have two. Okay? So they left the room, and these kids are sitting in the chair. They're, they're squirming around. And what do you think? How, how many kids could wait 15 minutes to get so that they could have two marshmallows? It's actually more than I thought, all right? I think like a third, these must have been the five-year-olds, all right? About a third of them could wait the 15 minutes, and then they got the second treat, all right? Now, for me, it would have to be like a Reese's peanut butter cup or something for this to really be worth it, because I'm just not very into marshmallows, okay? But um, now, now that in and of itself is kind of interesting, but, but what's really interesting about the experiment, what he did, he came back 10 years later, and he, and he came back to the same group of kids, and he kind of wanted to find out, like, was there any differences between the kids who waited and the ones who didn't. And he found there were actually substantial differences in, you know, 10 years later they would have been like in middle school and like grades and all these things. And then he actually began to just follow this set of, of, um, of people as they went through. The, he actually think, followed them for like 40 years. And what he found is that there were substantial differences between the kids who waited the extra 15 minutes for the marshmallow and those who did not. Now, the, now, why am I saying This is kind of a silly story, right? It doesn't really apply, but here, here's, here's the way I think of it, okay? Let, let's, let's just, like, say, change this experiment up a little bit. Let's say if instead of, like, a, just a second marshmallow, which really, they, they really should have went bigger than just two marshmallows, all right? Let's say, let's say the experimenter said, if you can wait 15 minutes, I'm going to come back, and you're going to have $100,000, okay? Just make it ridiculous, a million dollars, okay? And, and you think to yourself, all right, like what if you were this kid's parent and, and you're just like, hold on for 15 minutes, don't eat that marshmallow, we'll be set for life, okay? I, I think that's just like a little taste of kind of maybe how, how God feels when he looks at us, right? It's just like, okay, you guys want like, you want to eat a little marshmallow, but if you can just hang on, if you can like reorient yourself to what real treasure is, what real success is, your mind is going to be blown away um, like you can't even comprehend it. And um, someone this morning read from Ephesians 2. I didn't even plan on sharing this, but Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 6, it says, and Jesus raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And get this part, this is awesome. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Like, Paul says you can't even measure the riches of what God has in store. And in fact, it will take through the ages for Jesus to reveal those things. And, and here's Jesus. I mean, he, he's been there. He's been in the presence of God. He's seen heaven or he sees you know like it's already here jesus could just close his eyes and picture this millennial kingdom when the disciples would be reigning on the thrones when everything would be put put right all the treasure and all the you know like like how what they're giving up is like nothing compared to what they're going to have and jesus can just see it he can taste it but like we can't and 
And I think that's, that's what's so hard is like we're like blinded to all that God has in store for us. We're like, we're like the kid that wants to, to like taste the little marshmallow and we have no idea that God has something so much better and so much greater for us um, than, what, than what we see right now. Um, I've got a quote from Randy Alcorn. He wrote a really good book. It's called The Treasure Principle. I highly recommend it. Um, he said this. He said, financial planners tell us that when it comes to your money, don't think just three months or three years ahead. They say, you know, financial planners say, think 30 years ahead. Well, Christ, the ultimate investment counselor, takes it further. He says, don't ask how your investment will be paying off in just 30 years. Ask how it will be paying off in 30 million years, okay? And, and we just, we can't comprehend, all right? We're so... Um, fixated on the here and now. But this is what Jesus is calling us to and, and what Jesus is trying to get us to just take a little glimpse of what he has in store. And that's what, he, that's what he's reminding the disciples of. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. It's like it's like, oh, oh yeah, and by the way, the thing that the, the, thing that the rich guy came and asked about, oh yeah, you, you get eternal life too. Like that's, that's not even the first thing that he lists out. Um, but many who are first will be last and the last first. You know, so where do we, how do we tie all this together? You know, we're, we're about to enter into a time of communion and, and re- reflecting on what Jesus has done. You know, to finish the story of Eric Liddell, he, he actually went on to not only run in the, in the 400 meter, but he's, he actually set a world record as he, as he did that. Um, but he did something much more important in his life. You know, after, after the Olympics were over, I think it was the next year, uh, from 1925 to 1943, he went and he served as a missionary in China. Uh, and he, was, he worked at a school and he was a teacher. And when World War II came along, um, he actually ended up at interned in a, a Japanese prison camp. Uh, before the war, he had sent his, his wife and his three children um, home. Uh, actually, his third child was born after, after his wife left. Um, and he actually, he actually, before the war was over, he actually died in this, in this camp. But uh, from all the, the uh, things you read and, and the others at the camp, uh, he, was just like, he was just like this person who just continued to just Exude, you know, exude the love of Christ, and, and he was someone that, that all the other people in the camp looked up to. But one, a quote he had that I love, he said, many of us are missing something in life because we are after the second best. I put before you what I have found to be the best, one who is worthy of all our devotion, Jesus Christ. You know, the fact of the matter is our hearts will never really find true satisfaction. I mean, the guy, this rich a uh, young ruler knew he was missing something, and what he was missing was Christ, okay? Because all the riches, all, everything he could, he could add to himself was just nothing compared to the satisfaction of finding Christ as his treasure. And so, you know, if we let anything else take the spot of Christ in our life, and I'm so glad that we get to come here every week and just take the take the bread, take the juice, because we're so easily led into other pursuits, right? And and we need this time to just come together and to fix our eyes on Christ and just to say, God, I want you as my highest treasure. 
I, I know you're not all the time. I want you to be the highest treasure in my life. And in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, this is the, the verse I want to leave you with. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And really, take that verse. What Jesus was asking the rich young ruler to do, he had already done. He left the glory and the prestige and the riches of heaven, and he became poor. He became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. And that's what Christ has done for us. And I think when we look at what Jesus has done and when we, we contemplate what the cross has accomplished, uh, it's the only thing that can turn our kind of cold, Scrooge-like hearts um, and change them and transform us. And, and the only thing that can make Christ our treasure is seeing you know, him dying in our place. And you know, I wonder about the rich young ruler. He went away sorrowful. More than likely, that, that's the way he died. But you know, I wonder, what if he could have seen Christ on the cross? What if he, could have, what if he knew that the, that the man who was asking him to give up everything was give, going to give up everything for him? I mean, how powerful and amazing it is to think that Christ has done that for us. So let's just bow our heads, give thanks for, for Jesus. Father, uh, we just, we want to confess that we are uh, far too easily pleased. Um, we're like the, the toddler that wants to play in the mud when there is an offer of a holiday at the sea. And so we ask you to transform our hearts. We ask you to Help us to see our own um, inconsistencies. Um, help us to see the times where we put higher value on the things of this world, whatever they might be, than on following you. And um, Father, I pray that no one in this room um, who hears the offer of eternal life, um, the offer of following Christ, would turn away in sorrow. Father, I pray that everyone in this room, um, whether they know Christ now or are just still trying to decide whether to follow him, Lord, that you would help us to, to reorient ourselves to the greatest treasure uh, that there is. Uh, we just thank you and praise you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Turn.